This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Arthur Y. Webb, who has literally written the book on civil service. It's called Honorable Profession. He notes that in the 1970s, when he started his career in New York state government, three quarters of Americans believed in the good that government does. Well, now just one quarter do. Webb helped humanize prisons. He also orchestrated the dismantling of the state's 30 institutions for the developmentally disabled, moving residents of institutions like Willowbrook into communities. He advises following your moral compass and ensuring there is humanity in everything you do. Well, I'd like to just start by asking you what made you decide to write the book, which is really a double book, and you can explain that to our listeners. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for asking. Um, I was being so upset, frustrated with the rhetoric uh, about public servants um, that's just sweeping our country. It's like uh, they're they're the bad people. They've caused all this. And so part of my motivation was to say, hey, wait, let's step back. Our everyday lives, you know, by the time you get up in the morning and go to school, go to work, whatever, we are impacted by people who are public servants. Um, so our lives <clears throat> are totally involved with, with people who are in public service. So that was one reason. The second reason is really to, I don't know, uh, give an insight into government that a lot of people might not have kind of like behind the scenes look-see. Uh, this might help others. Um in public service, uh, it might help those thinking about public service. Uh, so, so the second reason really is to try to encourage people. It's a wonderful career, great opportunity, and you're doing good. And tell us about why this is a double book. It, you made, you created a manuscript in 1994, which is in the back of the current book, with the new book in front. Just tell us about the evolution of, of writing this. <laughs> oh, that's that's really good. Um, it is two books in one. Uh, and so when I was sitting down to kind of think about what I could do to contribute to some positive uh, uh, ideas about public service, I remembered, literally I forgot, that I had written a book 30 years ago, all finished, uh, the Library of Congress number ready to get printed, and I put it on hold, um, primarily because uh, at the time uh, Governor Cuomo had lost uh, the election, I was moving on in my career, um, so I just put it on hold, and the funny thing is, is that when I went to retrieve it, it was on one of those old floppy disks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I... I had to get a, an external drive, put it on. The formatting was, was so old-fashioned uh, that it took a little bit of work. But as I started to read it, here's the real substance. As I started to read it, it, it seems so current to me. Um, and maybe it's through my lens, but it seems so current and relevant. I said, okay, well, the back part of the book is more like management insight, you know, kind of little pithy statements, more like a more like a, a, a travel guide for public servants. And the front part is, oh, here's the story that helps you put some meat around some of what I was saying. So uh, the two books started to come together. It was um, actually fun doing. Yeah, I like that analogy, the travel guide for public servants, because what you get in the front part is it's like you're actually a native in the country as opposed to traveling through. And I marked a couple of passages that I was just going to read, really short passages that, uh, to me, kind of epitomized what you said. Uh, You said you were giving insight behind the scenes, because I think so many of us think of government 
not as the people running it. We might have an idea of the politicians, um, but but not not of what's been now in the Trump era been called deep state, not in the positive way that uh, it should be. So here's one passage. Picture this scenario. I am acting commissioner in a lame duck administration responsible for implementing some of the most onerous and immoral social service cuts in the middle of an election year fraught with changing alliances and a heated campaign. Many colleagues and friends in the governor's office were bailing. And during this professional upheaval, my family and I were grieving for my father, who passed away two weeks before I assumed office. So there we have a real person, a real human being, in the middle of this confluence of events. So if you could just kind of unpack for us what, what was happening there. Well, you know, as you read it, um, uh, I was uh, kind of hit me a little bit. It's just funny uh, that you picked that particular passage. Because <clears throat> that was an extremely trying time. So let's just start. Governor Kerry announces he's not running for re-election. Uh, the President Reagan's uh, welfare cuts, social service cuts, led by David Stockton, who was the budget director and the architect and philosopher of the trickle-down conservative policies, uh, they were extremely onerous. And then the pre previous commissioner, uh, who happens to be a really good friend and just a, one of the more wonderful people, uh, unfortunately she passed away, Barbara Bloom, uh, decided it was, she just needed to move on. Uh, so I was coming in and asked the acting commissioner of social services, which is this mega, mega agency that doesn't exist anymore in, in the state. Um, and, and then uh, the political campaign uh, was kind of got very crazy because Ed Koch recently won re-election as mayor of the city of New York, and then he declared that he wanted to run for governor. Um, and at the time, Mario Cuomo, who was the lieutenant governor at the time, had his hat in the ring. Uh, so it got started to get very, very uh, complicated. And then Lou Lehrman on the Republican side, the red suspender guy, if people <laughs> recall that, uh, and, uh, and he was running pretty much on the Reagan conservative welfare kind of state. Um, and so you put all that together, uh, it became extremely difficult, let alone the emotional aspect of that with my father dying um, and uh, little time to, to grieve or, you know, be with the family. Uh, so that was troublesome. And, and part of all of this is as certain public servants often sacrifice their own personal well-being uh, on behalf of what we're supposed to do, our challenge and our charge. Uh, so that was a, an interesting passage you picked because uh, to my mind, that captures uh, this, what it takes to be a public servant. So that, That's why I picked it. Here you were, you were 38 years old, very, very young, to be put, thrust in this position at a time in our country. Uh, a few pages earlier, you wrote, Reagan... The Reagan years launched a deep and destructive trend that continues to this day, namely bashing government and loudly condemning it as the problem in the country rather than a resource for good. So it was all falling on your shoulders as this young man in New York State in charge of these social services programs that were being portrayed as evil um, and just <laughs> to be in the midst of that and navigate through it. How, how did you do that? Uh, well, uh, some people uh, know that I'm very self-confident. 
uh, and uh, while age uh, was, yes, I was young, uh, as David Stockton, uh, Stockton was too. I mean, he was, what, 35 years old, had the budget OMB for, for Reagan. Um, uh, also, I had previous experience. I worked in corrections, uh, working for Commissioner Tom Colligan. <clears throat> so the, the agency size and its operation was not intimidating. I felt relatively comfortable in that space. Um, I'm a a student of management. I try to perfect my management capability. So taking on a huge mega agency with the imposing uh, welfare cuts, uh, that in and of itself was complicated, but not intimidating. So I felt relatively self-confident in my ability. The second piece, I'm very fortunate because Barbara Bloom hired uh, a lot of very senior people, um, and I made no changes. I brought no one in. I took that existing team. It's like a quarterback jumping into a team that's already <laughs> well established and say, okay, guys, here we go. You know the plays. Uh, you know, let's go on with it. Um, but internally, I have to say, virtually every day, we did an, um, moral sessions. Uh, in my office. What, um, what is a moral session? Describe that for us. Just to be very, we were, we were very clear about what is happening with these cuts and what's our ethical responsibility to, to families who are being kicked off of welfare or losing their food stamps, losing their daycare program. What is it that we can do? We know we have to do it. Otherwise, we're just going to lose all our federal funds. What do we have to do ethically and morally to try to protect these individuals and try to soften the blow? Um, so, and the other thing is just, to, how would you call it? Um, reinforce for people, many of them who are older than I, that we have a moral responsibility. Just to, you, you had to feel comfortable and you're, you're kind of thinking about why you're doing what you're doing. And that, I think, helped. If you were to interview any of the folks with me at that time, uh, they would say those sessions were critical to being able to suffer through all of the craziness that was going on at the time. Yeah, I would think so, because... To have families and individuals dependent on your agency suddenly having the things they depended on taken away, um, it, it must have been a heavy burden. So you mentioned just in passing, you said, I'm very self-confident. <laughs> Tell us where, I'd like to hear a little about your growing up, like your family, where this came from, this self-confidence, where... Geographically, where are you from originally? Okay, good. Uh, I was born in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, which is the steel town. And so the, the three lines of my family are farmers, dairy farmers, very large dairy farmers in northeastern Ohio, long gone. Um, one part of the family are bankers, were bankers, and the other part were steel workers. And so many of my family came to the United States to essentially to Youngstown to work in the mills. Came from uh, where? Came to the United States from where? Uh, mostly, mostly England and um, Northern England and uh, Northern Ireland. Um, and people seeking uh, how to work, yeah. uh, but also had their, they had their skills because they worked in the mines, many of them uh, in the 1800s. In England, uh, so it wasn't like uh, it was unfamiliar territory. Um, so it settled in Youngstown. <clears throat> Many of them worked in the mills from the late eighteen hundreds all the way through. Uh, my dad was in the in the mills. Um, my dad moved up to management, <clears throat> and he became a senior manager uh, for. Uh, several of the steel mills. Um, I was a frontline worker, hard hat, United Steel Worker member, which didn't go down well <laughs> in the family dinners. <laughs> Why? Why not? Well, because management and 
management and the union were just didn't see eye to eye on on most things. But <laughs> yet you, you write in your book that you learned a lot about management by being on the front oh, yeah. lines as a steel worker. Well, you know why? Because this is a lesson learned and I continued on with it. I never saw management. I was out there doing really hard work. My dad made sure I got the worst jobs you can find in a still mill. Because <laughs> um, he did not want my older brother or I to, to, to stay in the mills, get out of there. You know, the, it was a wonderful tradition. It's time is over. <laughs> so he made sure we had the worst jobs. But on the other hand, I never saw management down there looking, checking on quality, uh, improving employee uh, morale. Uh, someone got hurt on the job. You never saw them. Um, and then I, I think I uh, write in the book that at, at Christmas time, they would hand out gifts, you know, some cheap liquor, uh, like we're a bunch of alcoholics. Uh, it was kind of like a demeaning in, in many ways. Yeah. Um, so what, from my perspective, I, I learned there is that you, how do you manage a place as a manager and you don't know what's going on on the front lines? So what you learned yeah. about management was really it's sort of the, the flip side of what it shouldn't be rather than what it should be. Right, exactly. And throughout my whole career, even to today, uh, when I was uh, commissioner of mineral retardation for the state of New York, we had 28,000 employees. I, I probably knew half of them by their first name. You know, where they were, where they worked. Because <clears throat> I was always out in the field. I was trying to make sure... If what I'm saying in central office translates down to the front lines or there's such a disconnect that, that it's almost irrelevant what I'm saying. Um, and that worked out well because in the process of deinstitutionalization, it really required a lot of frontline people engaging and, and believing that uh, this is the right thing to do. So. Yeah. You have in your book a, a quote from your father who, as a management person, went to Japan and looked at the plants there and right, came right. back and said they're going to beat the crap out of us, presumably because they had management that was more kind of on top of what was happening in, in the production. Is that? Well, they learned from an American management consultant, yeah. uh, Arthur Deming, Um how to how to create a process to produce quality uh, because you know Japanese cars used to be a joke they would fall apart especially when they were brought into the northeast uh, <laughs> in the winters and the salt on the roads you know? <laughs> by the time the Toyota uh, couldn't even pull it out of the garage um, and the and the other thing is is that you never drove a, a Japanese or foreign car into a into the parking lot of a steel mill that just was verboten. Uh, <laughs> like, we are American. We build American cars. Um, and so when he came back, he, my dad, I remember saying, he said, man, the world's going to change and it's going to change very fast. And it did. Once once the Japanese put in place the quality control, um, you know, they just they produce quality cars and they still do today. Uh, an example of that Ford at the time in the in the early 60s, 50 percent of the cars coming through the production line were put aside because they were incomplete. Half of the cars. Oh, my. Huh. It, it was an inspect and reject concept which permeated the the. Auto, you know, uh, steel industry and auto and everything else. So anyway, that was uh, the lesson learned from him. Yeah. So just walk us through your life. So you're yeah. a young man, hard hat job. Your father is pushing you and you mentioned your brother not to have that for your life work. What what got you on the path of public service? Just kind of walk us through the road you followed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, President Kennedy, John F. Kennedy. Uh, I was coming of age. Most people politically come of age around 16 mm -hmm. or thereabouts. 
And that was certainly my case. Uh, I was so inspired by that. Um, I devoted myself to uh, student uh, student government, <laughs> uh, very involved in the national youth movement. Um, uh, really got very engaged and and trying to figure out what my responsibilities were, personal and professional. At the, you know, over time, uh, what I can do to to improve the quality of life of all Americans, and that was just amazingly simple piece to that. Um, went into the military, did what I was supposed to do there, uh, came out, got very involved in healthcare early on, worked with young drug addicts on the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, in the early 70s um, when heroin was just rampant uh, in, in the drug world. Uh, and from that experience, from the front lines, just started to build a career opportunity. Um, Went to NYU, uh, worked on my PhD, which I never completed. Yeah, you life. have you have an interesting parenthetical comment on that with your wife, uh, who apparently supported both of you as you were working on your studies. Yeah, and yeah. you didn't finish the dissertation because it was about Medicaid and you thought you'd jump into government <laughs> and actually do the hands on with it. And, yes. yeah. Well, it was really uh, and, and we've been married for 57 years. Uh, and it, and, it, and oftentimes it is a reminder. You remember, you didn't finish your PhD. You promised me. <laughs> well, maybe you could submit this book as a dissertation and and close it out. <laughs> you know? uh, if life was that simple, yeah. Uh, but you know, so f- that, that continuing process of trying to get smart. Uh, I felt that I was just not well educated enough about how things work, especially in government, public policy, um, and then work through all of that. Um, And then uh, starting to write my dissertation, that's how I got to Albany. That's how I got into public service, because I was going to write my dissertation. In fact, it was halfway done on Rockefeller's 1972 Medicaid cuts. And so I wanted to get firsthand information. So I saw a job offer. I applied and became a a Medicaid uh, budget person uh, in 1974 in the state division of the budget. And from there, um, opportunities uh, just started to come about, which I was able to take advantage of. Yeah, well, what opportunities? I don't think they just came about. I think it had something to do with the work that you were doing at each level. But I'm going to read another passage before we run out of time, because to me, this is pivotal, not just for your book, but where we are now is a democracy. It the subhead on this section of the chapter is called Closing State Institutions. Right. The, the weighty decision to close all state institutions was not one we could simply announce. Such an approach would guarantee that our bold plan would be DOA, dead on arrival. Influential individuals and entities had to be consulted. Unlike politicians, you can't just declare a bold action without precedent or predicate. This was a core principle of Governor Mario Cuomo. As he said, you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose. So if you could just kind of unpack that for us, where you were in your life, what was happening in state government, and how you you affected that huge change in how we as a society, at least in New York, treat people with mental illnesses or conditions. Thank you for asking. It was interesting, a good portion of my life, I had very little contact with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, And so when I was asked to become commissioner, I said, I just need to get smart. Uh, You know, what, who are these individuals? What's going on in their lives? So I went out and visited every institution within this first 30 days of being on the job. Um, And I came away and I said, this is no way 
to treat anybody and being in these large institutions. They just were so disturbing to me. Um, however, it was a way of life for people, including the employees. Many of these communities, like in Rome, New York, they had three and four generations of families working in these institutions. These institutions were major economic entities, their engines within their own community because of the size of it and what they purchased from food to, to whatever have you. And they had huge grounds, you know, hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of acres. Anyway, and besides, the second thing is, is that the national policy movement advocates were saying, let's close the institutions. Uh, and then we were, the third thing is Willowbrook. I needed to get Willowbrook behind us as opposed to having to constantly define our field. Uh, our field should be designed around the qualities of the individual and making sure that they have the greatest opportunities to be integrated and included in our communities. So you take those three kind of policy trends <clears throat> and you put them together. I finally had to orchestrate a way to get the governor to agree to close all the state institutions because remember, they were all union workers. And and the first thing anybody would say among the union, we're going to lose all our jobs. And I had uh, 28,000 employees with about 24,000 all union. So their whole future was being pulled out. Uh, the rug was being pulled out, creating uncertainty and anxiety uh, around that. So one of the major things I did before any kind of major announcement I got to know virtually every union uh, local president <clears throat> in every state institution by name. Then I started to meet with the president of CSCA in particular, Danny Donahue, trying to give him confidence that we are going to find a job for virtually everyone in the institution, but we're going to move them into the community. And so once you can, I can put that the politics together, convincing um, you know Mario Cuomo that it was this is the right thing to do for for him and and for the for the state. I did editorial boards because most editorial boards thought that it was the most economic way to serve people in big large institutions. So having, I had to find a way to dispel all of those uncertainties, frustrations, anxieties, whatever you want to call it into a coherent, systematic approach to closing institutions. And we, the way we did that was build community-based services so I can transition the employees into community-based services, group homes, other community services. And, and that started the process to close all the state institutions. It was very bold. Uh, a lot of people thought I was nuts. Um, <laughs> No one could take that on, especially in a short time period. But once we started to get mobilized, there's, there's a concept in, in management called flywheel. Uh, it, it's taken from the grinding kind of uh, wheat industry. It, very difficult to get the flywheel moving that would be grinding. But once you get it going, it's amazing how it works. And so... Using that kind of analogy, uh, I used it, uh, let's get this flywheel going. And once we did, people really bought into it and communities were accepting, you know, not every place, but they generally were. And that was very successful. But the first thing I had to do, though, is convince them we're closing Willowbrook, um, and which was the notorious um, facility Gerardo Rivera, everybody. I mean, it was the symbol of neglect. And I had to get that out of our system. Um, it was it was like a poison in many ways. Uh, so uh, that was uh, one of the major targets, convincing people that we can close institutions by starting with the most notorious. So... Well, uh, it, it changed the landscape of how we think of human beings. Um, absolutely. It really was 
I think your book uses the word sea change. It, it really, really was a sea change. And just to kind of see the story behind how it happened. I love that quote you use from Mario Cuomo about, you know, it's not the politicians with their poetic phrases. You govern in prose and you're down on the ground working with the union presidents and the the editorial boards and, and making the society at large understand the concept of what you're doing. It, it, it's just, it, <laughs> it gives you goosebumps to think about government that way, I think. Yeah, it, it does me as well, uh, tell you the truth, as we're talking. Uh, and and Mario was, was, he totally got what we were doing. Um, he probably would not have done it on his own, you know, coming in and saying, hey, Webb, I want you to go close all the institutions. Well, that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> That's not where his priorities were. Um, and working with him and his senior staff, um, people I mentioned in the book, like Hank DeLay and, you know, others, um, he immediately got it. And the big thing that he got, which was absolutely wonderful, being able to convert the Willowbrook campus, which is a gorgeous campus in Staten Island, converting that from a state institution, one of notoriety and neglect, to one of education and learning and wisdom, which is now the college of Staten Island. And when you go visit it, it's like a um, it's like an Ivy League campus. Uh, with these beautiful red brick Georgian buildings. <laughs> and, uh, and and so I get a thrill thinking that we were able to find a way to convert something like Willowbrook uh, into the College of Staten Island. And the governor totally, I mean, he just grasped that immediately. Um, and that became somewhat of a model as we were trying to close other state institutions. Yeah, well, the symbol of that is just amazing to to go to become an institute of higher learning. Gee, we're just our time is going so fast, and there were so many other concepts. Maybe we could just touch on because it was important in what you sent into our newspaper that we ran, and I, I think so many of us think. Um, I mean, you you see the problem is starting with the Reagan years. This idea. Um, you know, the government is a problem rather than a solution. And certainly the time we're living in now uh, with the Trump years of, you know, deep state and this idea that there are these evil players that have to be controlled. You have this one part in your book um, where you're setting up a unit to puncture, you say, the myths and inaccuracy. This is during the campaign where yes. Lou Lerman yes. is running. Okay. And you say, every day we released truth information packets to the press. And maybe it's because I'm in the press. But that really struck me because I had thought until now that it was a product of the Trump years that, that people, um, you know, talk about fake news and certainly there's always been an idea that a reporter has to get down to the truth but this idea that even then in that era um, the, the beginning of distrust of government went along with um, the perpetuation of I don't know what you'd call it I'd call it lies it's been called by the Trump people an alternate an alternate truth or alternate reality but if you, yeah. if you just tell us a little about those truth packets that just interested oh, me yeah um, and, and I didn't I only gave you a little bit of the story in the book um, I put together uh, within the agency Department of Social Services uh, People who are really smart. They just know this stuff. And so uh, we had an obligation. We listened to what Mario said, Ed Koch said, what Lou Lehrman said, in particular Lou Lehrman, as he ran on the welfare queen uh, kind of idea, generations of people who've been living off of government. Anyway, so we, we made sure every day we listened. And then... 
internally we call them our, our kind of our truth squad. We would issue, uh, think about this, and we didn't have social media back then. Uh, we would uh, develop uh, press releases, uh, for instance, on the uh, digging into the data about the longevity and the generational impact of welfare. Uh, we try to disabuse people that indeed uh, welfare is a, is a kind of a lifelong way of doing, you know, living. Um, uh, the um, uh, employment of the poor, um, the poverty in, in the state of New York, uh, trying to provide facts and figures not to be political because you can't do that, right? You'd be violating uh, the, uh, the statute. But we wanted to make sure that the press in particular, so we were issuing these press releases, cranking them out on the fax machines <laughs> over to Legislative Correspondents Association, the LGA over in the state capitol. Uh, and frequently they were picked up. Um, but there's another part of the story, and I, I'm, I'm going to give you an insight that that's not in the book. Uh, partly it's in the book. I was very friendly with the state legislature, both both aisles, both parties, both all the leaders, first name basis. Uh, that was part of my strategy as well. Uh, and one of the senior people on the Republican side of the state legislature in the Senate called me one day and he said, hey, um, hey Art, uh, I, I like the stuff that you're doing every day, but just be careful and don't cross the line. Uh, and become political. Uh, let Lou Lehrman and Mario ultimately let them play this out. Um, we're not saying don't do the factual kind of releases. Just be very careful so you don't editorialize as you're doing it. <clears throat> and I, I think that was helpful. Um, I think it was helpful for everybody because a lot of the, the, the people who are delivering care all the way out there, the not-for-profit organizations doing child care, uh, doing adult homes, doing, uh, you know, daycare programs, uh, you know, they wanted reassurance that what they're doing is the right thing to do. And so part of all of that was to try to help reinforce this um, kind of idea about public service and, you know, what they were doing is good stuff. Yeah, it seems like so much of what you did in your public service career was close gaps, level playing fields. I don't know which cliche to grab, but th now the chasm is becoming so much wider between the haves and have-nots, and the, uh, it, 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 it just seemed like your vision of government was... Um, I hope it's not lost. Do you have closing thoughts for us? Who should who should read this book? First of all, I, I, you know, I, I look at it. Uh, people who work in government should probably be reading it. Um, and 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 so like uh, our, what we're doing right now, uh, Melissa, tell you the truth. And what the Times Union has done and other kinds of things. Um you know, people in government, people in school who are in the schools of public administration uh, need to be uh, look at this and feel confident that it's hard, hard work. It frequently tests your moral character. Uh, you get pushed around a lot. You can't be successful all the time. But indeed, uh, you can make government work. And it, it's essential that we make government work. Our democracy couldn't exist without a well-functioning government. And so for the people and, and then the, the, the general public, they always kind of like, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, Public servants, okay, thank you very much. So I try to write it in such a way that it wasn't so fancy, uh, but people could read it and, and perhaps grasp, um, you know, what it is that we're trying to do. And then the third group are the policy wonks. <laughs> They're everywhere. I, we never use the word policy wonk when I was in public service. Uh, but these are folks that, are constantly writing about public policy, sometimes have never been responsible for implementing it. And so part of my intention was to say, 
look at if you're going to do something about AIDS in corrections, hey, take a look at this. You know, maybe you can learn something about how to craft and think about public policy, uh, because when you try to implement this stuff, it's not so easy. It's not a, it's not it's not necessarily one to one relationship between what you write as a policy document and what it means to, in fact, impact on an individual. Really, that's the heart of your book, how, how to make an idea into a reality and the process of getting there, which is many, many layered. Well, I can't thank you enough. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, what I was going to say, maybe is it's not so much a last thought. It's not like uh, here it is, the punchline. Um, but, you know, as we talk and as I wrote, it was very it was almost difficult sometimes to believe I did that work. I, I don't know if you've ever felt that that since you look back at something and say, oh, dear, could I could I do that again? <laughs> uh, and um so that's interesting. Right. So you kind of create yourself as a character separate from yourself in the book. Yes. And you're looking at yourself and kind of marveling at what you did. I like that. Yeah. Well, I write to learn. Mm-hmm. I, I write to inform. I don't write to impress me. I, I, I learn a lot about, about things when I start to write. Um, and I, I always have my, I always had my staff write, whether it's one paragraph, two paragraphs, because when you, and you, you're, you're in the field, you're an art, you're, you're an artist (laughs) in language. When you start to put something on paper, you know, what the subject is and what the verb is and what the predicate is, right? All of a sudden there's a discipline that I really mean to say that, (laughs) Um, so I, I write to learn, uh, you dig in. And then the second thing, if I'm not informing someone as I'm writing, then what's the purpose? I'm not entertainment, you know, uh, you know, I'm not writing poetry. I'd stick to prose uh, that Mario Cuomo said I should do. Uh, and, and so my, my thought on that is, Write, learn to write, and uh, and I don't know if we do enough of that in our society. Tell you the truth, um, it is in and really helping people think about themselves and what they're saying by putting it on paper. Um, it's it's a it's a sobering experience in many ways because then you're reading it objectively. You hope you are, uh, and saying okay. I really do mean to say this. Um, so I call it the journey of learning when I write. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. And what you are able to do at the end of each of your chapters is you have these little bullets. And usually I kind of ignore little bullets because I think of them as things like, you know, how to bleach your clothes. <laughs> But your little bullets have gravitas. And now as I'm listening to you talk about it, I see that as you were writing the chapter, you were learning what you call the through lines and you summarize them in ways that have gravitas. You know, they're they're not light. They take they take some thought, but they're graspable. So, well, I, I wish I had uh, talked to you before I wrote the book. I could have put what you just said. <laughs> I, I would have loved that. Um, it, here's the thing, and and I mentioned the word travel guide. I actually wrote it like a travel guide. So at the end of the chapter. When you pick up a travel a book, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, let's visit uh, Paris and make sure you see, uh, you know, uh, the museums, etc. Um, and they give you all the co- colorful narrative. And, and then they, at the end, uh, here's a road trip. Here's, a, you know, ways to get there. And so that's what I try to do at the end of each chapter is, is leave room within the space, actually, so they could write it and say, here are the key travel points, 
if you're going to take this journey, here's a few things you better grasp when you're doing taking this journey, because there'll be a lot of bumps in the road and, you know, dead ends and, and bypasses, etc. cetera. Uh, so it was actually written conceptually for me uh, as a travel guide. Oh, I like that idea because it isn't just a travel guide through public service or government. It's got a lot of life lessons. Lots of those bullets are things anybody could use. They don't necessarily, although maybe that's what government is if it's a democracy of the people. So maybe it applies across the board to all of us. But I'm just, I'm going to quickly flip to any one of the end of paragraphs just so people can get an idea of what they are. I hadn't marked these out ahead to read. So <clears throat> here is just a sampling of a series of bullets that comes at the end of the paragraph on the corrections crisis. Ensure there is humanity in everything you do. Mm. Be ready to take on the unexpected. Leadership is based on respect. Being tough when called for is an essential management skill. Management must work as a team, which is critically important in prison settings. And even though that comes out of this chapter on this terrible crisis, it ends up, you could use any one of those for, I mean, running a PTA meeting or, um, you know, dealing with a troubled child. Um, I just like it. They're, they're these little nuggets that come out of a specific experience, but if you think of your travel guide as more through life than just government or management, they have a, a universal reach. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so important. Uh, the humanity thing is probably is the one that has guided my whole life. And, and it, most people would not use the word humanity when you're talking about some prison systems, <laughs> you know, because they are, um, Prisons. I mean, you, you you're taking away uh, one's freedom, but because they did something, um, in many cases, uh, violent, brutal, abusing the society and abusing people and getting them off the street. I get that, right? You do the crime, you do the time, which is kind of like the things said in the correctional world. On the other hand, the average stay in a prison was 27 months. They come, they go. And 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 Tom Coughlin in particular, a tough, tough Irishman, former state policeman, state trooper, you know, he said, look, at, uh, you know, part of our job is to make sure they don't come back. Try, how do we break this recidivism? Is there anything we could do while they're here? And so part of what, we did was begin and, and really move very aggressively under Tom's leadership, and, and I miss him dearly, um, is try to do things. So college education programs we introduce, employment programs, honor, honor uh, units, um, uh, uh, reuniting families um, with, uh, you know, uh, really providing money to have families coming from New York City up to the upstate prisons uh, so that there was a family gathering, those kinds of what things. And religion, you also mentioned in the book, religion. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, look, at uh, prisons are pretty violent places, um, difficult places. And, and when you think of it, the guards probably spend more time in prison than most prisoners. Hmm. You, the guards are there. They're there for 20 years. They're 20 and out if they're going to stay there and get their state pension. And and that was true in so many communities. Uh, and so when you think of it, we had to also think about the guards. But, you know, they walk in and that door clanks. There's there's nothing probably as startling unless you're in the military. Um, you walk in and that door closes uh, with a clank and you're inside a new world, a different world than what you're living in. 
And, you know, those guards were coming in and, you know, facing uh, facing people they don't like uh, and vice versa. Everybody's trying to get over on everybody else. It's a strange thing. So, so Tom said, you know, what do we have to do to kind of change some of this environment? We're going to be hard-nosed. We're going to run out like the military, which he did. Um, so part of my job, which is the deputy commissioner for program services, uh, was to try to introduce some things that humanized uh, the experience of people, hopefully, uh, would be uh, benefited so that uh, they wouldn't be coming back. So I love it. I love the idea of by serving someone's humanity, you're serving society at large because you're cutting down on the recidivism, which isn't good for anyone. I wish we could keep going, but I thank you so much. And is there any last thought or should we just, because it keeps leading to more. You are such a fascinating person. Yeah. Well, you, you asked me that a couple of minutes ago. I know. I <laughs> and know. I diverted your attention to it. Anyway, uh, but my key thought is, is, Always, and it's probably the theme in the book is, is making sure your moral compass uh, is is very clear um, all the time. So making sure why you're doing it, what its impact on you, as well the individuals that you're working with, uh, and because at the end of the day, many people won't remember all the things you did as a manager. But they will remember you in terms of your character and how you treated people and how you respected even the most difficult individual that you can find and how you tried to respond to them in, in terms of making them feel good about living in America. So that's the key thing for me and for anybody uh, probably in life in general, but but in particular in public service. Um, and, and the second piece is we are still a young democracy, even after 250 years. Um, we have a long way to go, as, as we're learning now, in terms of dealing with racism, in terms of dealing with political divide, um, and, and so we're, we're, our country is in a constant state of invention and reinvention, uh, but always adhering to some core principles. And part of what I believe uh, is essential to that is, is a government that you can trust, government that is performing. And when you wake up and you go out on the street and the lights are working and the streets are clean and the schools are open and the libraries are there. Just think about that. Those are all done by public servants. Um, and it's just a, a way of making sure we remind ourselves. Uh, and if we could show a little respect once in a while, uh, that, that might go a long way. 